I wish I had a pile in a podcast. I wish I had a hmm we can I wish I had a hmm from the end of hmm that's in the portable speakers making Bob smash. <laughs> I wish I had a million dollars. Okay, so I obviously don't listen closely enough to our theme song. And I am away from home and away from my soundboard, and I'm sorry I can't actually play the intro. My apologies. I will not be trying to rap again anytime in the near future. But hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I know I know, I have been reneging on my responsibilities. I told you guys last Monday that I would probably do, I would not do a, a call-in on Thursday because we weren't releasing a Thursday episode, but that I would do a hang on Friday. And Friday, I was too full. <laughs> <laughs> I was too full to host this. And I saw this opening in my day where my family has gone out to show our house guests around Cleveland. And I am home alone and wanted to just grab this free hour where there were no distractions and where I wouldn't come off as being deeply antisocial to go ahead and do a little hang. No pressure to stay here for a very long time. I just wanted to touch base with you guys because I have never had a lapse like this in the past. I want to know what's going on with you. I know that there's been a whole lot of news that I've been trying very hard to avoid, but we have to come to terms with it at some point before we have to go to our job on Rising on Tuesday. Them's the breaks. So I'm happy to talk about movies you've been watching when you're at home over this holiday. I'm happy to talk about whatever's been going on in the news. I'm happy to talk about general holiday Michigas. I don't know if you guys caught our pre-tape for Thursday at uh, Rising, but we opened with a conversation about the politics of Thanksgiving dinner, which became like a huge conversational focus, I think around 2016, when everybody, uh, you know, had to go to family Thanksgiving immediately after Trump was elected. I want to hear all of your horror stories or your positive stories. Um, whatever's on your mind, I won't belabor that point. So let's get to it with your cute puppy in the avatar. What's on your mind? Hey, Brie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Chris? I like your energy. I'm great. We talk uh, quite frequently. I'm always changing up my inner, my avatar on you. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. the one that tricked you that time into clicking on me with the Game of Thrones avatar. I mean, honestly, Chris, you've hacked it because I do, it, like, I, I mostly just go in order, but I will jump around, especially if I see a lot of uh, new faces in the queue. Or you, a puppy. You, you figured it out. <laughs> you like the puppies, too, I've noticed. I do. I, I like a good animal. <laughs> Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I'm not going to be long because I'm watching my uh, college team play football and we're not doing too great. But um, oh, I was no. just calling to say War Damn Eagle and uh, Go Tigers, Auburn University football. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, happy Thanksgiving, Bree. Happy Thanksgiving to you too, Chris. I'm glad you called into chat. It's nice hearing from you. Oh, oh wait. I'm still, I'm still looking forward to hearing your Game of Thrones episode with Robbie. Oh, wait, that, we, so we recorded it with, um, Robbie and Ole right what? here on Colin. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I gotta go back. Okay, I'll go back and watch it. Yeah, whenever the finale it. was, uh, we talked about it. Okay, good. I'll go back and listen to it. Okay, all right. Hey, and, keep and the faith. Report, report back to me and let me know what you think, Chris. I will, I will. All right, keep the faith. See ya. Okie dokie, Jonathan. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. And I got, I got to listen to, uh, I'm convinced you did it on purpose, but I, we got <laughs> Claremont episode, which you, uh, released, but it, it remains unlisted. 
just as a reward. I think so. I think that like so. It's our premium episodes are just released like unlisted, and then you get the link and from the Patreon. And so I do think there's some way that if you are subscribed and like you just there's like a pattern to the links or something where you can just access it if you clicked on them before. I don't really know what's going on. I need to talk to uh, producer Armand about it. Uh, but it was not intentional. I did see like a hundred people have listened to it, so my bad. But yes, that will be Monday's Monday's episode. Jonathan has a sneak preview. Yes, and it was it was awesome. It was everything you said it would be, and then some. And I got a bunch of other people to listen to it, and they're like, "Wow!" Oh, I'm so like, glad to hear that. It was just spectacular. It set the wheels in my head turning all all weekend, really. And uh, just uh, yeah, no, it was fabulous, and uh, I think uh, I think it's going to be a big smash when the uh, when the proper release happens. Like I okay. absolutely vouch for it. We were thrilled that we got an early sneak peek. Well, I'm I'm really glad to hear that you approved, Jonathan, because you know it was like your idea, basically. Like you're, you put me on in a big way, and everyone who's uh, impatient should go ahead and listen to. Uh, Farah Mate's interview on macaroni and cheese because uh, it's a great supplementary interview to the one you're getting on Monday. Uh, yeah, the other the other thing I, I was going to bring up was uh, my uh, my boomer socialist friend who I've told you about, the one that had the uh, run in with CoIntelPro. Uh, yeah. Good buddies with Michael Hudson. Apparently, you came up in conversation, and uh, and she mentioned that. Uh, you know, to him that uh, at some point he uh, you'd like to have him on the show. And he says, by all means, give her my direct email. So I have that for you. I can oh, DM wonderful. it to you if you like. Okay, Jonathan, hit me up, hit me up in the Twitter DMs. I, that is, like, so helpful. I'm also a little bit behind on scheduling guests because I've been in my holiday slot. So that's super helpful, and I, I would absolutely love to talk about that. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. I've talked to him on RP Lives before on Zoom. This guy doesn't mince metaphors. He is pretty much the best guest you can have because it's like you prompt him, you just like pull the string, and he'll he'll just go on with like great content and flamboyant turns of phrase for for ages. Like he's he's awesome. Like you'll love him, absolutely love him, and especially uh, Clara Matei loves him too. Actually, she referenced him in the uh, macro and cheese article or in the macro and cheese episode. So yeah, I think you're you're really gonna enjoy talking to him i'll send you that uh via dm and uh and i i saw your picture of mac and cheese on uh speaking of mac and cheese on uh instagram <laughs> it looked it looked spectacular and uh like I, I like i was glad to see you guys looking like you were having a great time thank you it was, it was a pretty good holiday it was the first thanksgiving we've had in cleveland and so i was wondering if it was going to feel kind of weird and not like home but it definitely does feel like home and in fact, I might be making another batch of mac and cheese because it went so fast, it outpaced the rest of the leftovers, and I feel like I always want a complete plate. So I might go downstairs after this call and make up another batch. Yeah, so, my, my family loaded me down with leftovers. I still have a lunch pail full of them. I'm on duty on my 24, but uh, it's uh, yeah, it's going to last me at least another good two meals. And they got me completely drunk there too um, <laughs> it's yeah they had like single malt scotches and punches and things like that and yeah I just I felt like it was good food but I felt bad by the end of it I was like oh man it gives me the worst heartburn now like I'm oh, no. I mean it's true there are definitely consequences like I said I was like completely out of uh, incapacitated yesterday I couldn't rouse to do anything I don't think any of us bathed yesterday <laughs> So I got up today and I finally went on a run before the sun went down. The sun sets at like, I mean, the sun is down right now. The sun sets at like, starts setting at like three. 
here. So I feel a little bit more human today. But yeah, Thanksgiving, um, it's not exactly a life extending holiday. I feel your pain, and you know what? Like, we, like, none of us minded missing a Thursday episode for this, because, like, you're entitled to a little vacation and to have a little fun and to relax and not to have any pressure for a few days. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're all happy in that department. Well, I, I appreciate that, and I, I hear you're, <laughs> I hear you're out on the streets on the job, so I won't keep you any longer. But it's always great to hear from you, and I look forward to your DM, Jonathan. All right. All right, keep the faith, my friend. All right, CR, what's on your mind this afternoon? Hey, Brianna, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay, all considered. Been a while since I called in, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Thanksgiving was was good. Went to the the parents' place, and my mom did everything from scratch. Pies. Love that. I mean, did you guys did no. you guys volunteer to help her? I was gonna say I love that, but then. Uh. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I, me, me and my uh, roommate drove over there, or whatever. So, unfortunately, we did show up <laughs> about ten minutes before dinner was ready. So, I know that's that's quite <laughs> See, quite horrible. Mom, is, any, is there anything I can do? <laughs> my my mom calls that like arriving like you're. She's always um, fussing at my brother when we were in New York, at least, and he wasn't like living there. She would be like, "What? What are you doing? Showing up like you're a guest? You're not a guest." <laughs> like, you're, <part laughs> you're part of putting this production on. You you can't just like show up in advance. But but I get it. It must it must have been nice to um, experience. I've yeah. been a little well, of things, but it must be nice. <laughs> yeah, my my mom's also really good about that. Of course, you know, as soon as I came out, I'm like, what can I do? She's like, all right, I'll set the put you know forks and knives on the table or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, stuff mm-hmm. like like that, or you know, anything I could you know clean up stuff like that. Of course, but uh, okay, well, um, if you help with no, cleanup, she's always, that's she's, yeah, and she's always like, oh, I just, I love, she loves cooking for, for people and, and whatnot. So she's like, oh, I'm so happy you and your, your roommate came and, and all that. But the fun, here's the funny part about it, why I don't just bring up this story willy-nilly. My mom looks at me like I have drank the Kool-Aid often. When I tell her things, I'll just, you know, so they're like, oh, Barack Obama, he was, man, I kind of miss Barack Obama. He was such a great president. I'm like, actually, he was a piece of shit. And they just look at me like I just farted in their face, and it, 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 it's it's so I've gotten into shouting. My mom, like I, like I was, you know, a uh, uh, couple holidays back, I got into a shouting match with my mom about whether or not the FBI lies to us. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just like mother, mother, for the love of Pete, fuck for the love of Christ, you know that the FBI <laughs> lies to us. And she's like, I don't know what you're saying sounds like bullshit. What you're saying sounds like a lie. And I was like, uh, you know, so it's like those things. So. I right. definitely went into one of the, I went into one of those situations where, uh, um, you know, it was a little hostile kind of family members a little bit in terms of my political views, you know what I mean? And um, so I, I can kind of relate to that, but I honestly, uh, I have a little bit of issue with the deluge of all of these articles that we've seen, like you said, pretty much since 2016, but, you know, especially this year and last year, you know, leading up to uh, uh, Thanksgiving, there's always this huge amount of articles with more or less the headline of how to talk to your, your relatives, or uh-huh. how to talk to your, your conservative uncle. And, and I fucking hate it. You know what I mean? I, I, yeah. I honestly do. Like I get, I get some of the people that write these articles. It is tongue in cheek and they are, you know, they're just trying to, you know, Hey, let me help my shit live friends, you know, talk. But at the end of the day, they're your family members for Pete's mm-hmm. sake. Okay. It's mm-hmm. not team red, team blue. You should be able to go visit mom and dad and aunt and uncle and brother and sister and everybody 
and not have to take a fucking how-to guide to love <laughs> the people that you already love and care about and who love you back unconditionally. Like, I know my mother thinks that I'm batshit crazy politically, but I know that she loves me unconditionally. So I don't need a guide to talk to her. And, and, yeah. and, and what that what that insinuates really just bothers me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, 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 we're letting them dictate this culture war, uh, 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 you know, bullshit, team sport thing, which works well for the oligarchy, which works well for the 1%. So I, I can't, I, just being my, my political views, I can't help but view all of those articles through that lens. And it really just... It really just bummed me out, mainly because, like, I do try <laughs> to get along with my mom, despite the fact that we butt heads politically, you know, and um, that that is frustrating. But at the same time, I don't want to be looking at her as though she's on some other side of the fence, that she's on some I'm on blue team and she's on red team. Mm-hmm. And we have to, like, butt heads. I don't want to think about it. even though there is, you know, strife there and we do get into kind of shouting arguments over ridiculous things that are clearly factual, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I, I so, just, I, yeah. I mean, do you, do you, do you, does that bother you at all? I guess yeah, would be so my, kind of my question. When Robbie and I took on this question for the Thursday morning, um, rising a block, we, we came to the conclusion that it's the, the issue is that it's very, um, it feels performative, not the fact that sometimes there are disagreements over, over Thanksgiving or anytime you're with family, which is the group of people that, you know, you were assigned as, as opposed to, cho- you know, chosen. So there's going to be more ideological differences in all likelihood. But because, like, the, the article nature of it, the way it's framed in these pieces, it seems more about people articulating how different they are from their families in a, in a way that exactly. almost seems like, oh, I'm not from there. Oh, I, I left Ohio and went to New York, and I don't think that way anymore. You know, like, that's, like, the tone of a lot of these, pieces like I've evolved past my family and why aren't they catching up with me and there's a kind of as someone who whose family like broadly shares their politics although there are differences I am more to the left than you know say my brother and I know that my extended family thinks that some of the things I say are maybe more radical from time to time I, I it's like if you are fully like dealing with Republicans and Trump voters and stuff like I do that by choice <laughs> you know but yeah. Right, like professional choice. And I, I need you to take the fact that you have relationships, loving relationships with these people, and they're going to like you no matter what. I have to, like, earn credibility and trust with these people. They love you. And the idea that you were, like, so put upon to, to like, be in a room with them for a few hours a couple of times a year, I don't know. It strikes me as, like, if, if you really do feel, if it really is that toxic and horrible, of course, everyone has the right not to associate with their family. But if, if it's not and you're going and you love these people and actually you're like getting along fine, but you're just writing these articles about how difficult it is to try to like signal how you're just not like them and how you're superior and more evolved, that's just very annoying to me. And they don't seem to be written in the spirit of actually mutual understanding. They're like written like survival guides. <laughs> exactly. You see, you're, you're articulating better than, than I was my, 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 my same point here. So if I could just be a little bit of echo chamber here for a sec. Uh, one of the things that I did bother me the most was the I saw a, a number of people tweeting out the list of, and it said something to the effect of talking points for your uncle about Biden. And it, and it was just a list of like, well, Biden did this and Biden oh. did that and Biden. <laughs> and, and I'm like, all this list is going to do is get my fucking uncle to not want to speak to me anymore. You know what I mean? Like this isn't going to help us find common ground. Or, or reconcile the differences between our points of view. You know what I mean? So I didn't find that even if you, I were to take them in good faith, and, and like I said, and that maybe they're just, some of them were tongue-in-cheek, some of them were good faith, I still don't find any value in it whatsoever. 
You know, I, I, yeah. I honestly don't like you, there's no reason to other them, your family of all of all people, the, the you know, the way that we are allowed to other, you know, uh, 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 Russians or Cubans or, 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 or North Koreans or whoever it is that, that justifies the sanctions and the wars and the invasions and the bombings that we do against them is through this very basic primal aspect of othering people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, hit. You know, all the all the great, you know, dictators and despots of the, of the of the past were able to achieve a lot of what they did by othering. So I, I'm like, why? So why let that filter that down to our family? And even if your family is a, is a gay hating, gun toting, God fearing, you know, uh, uh, anti-choice Christian, there is absolutely no reason why you can't ask them, you know, how are they doing? How's work going? You know, how's. How's your mom? How's your sister? I missed you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? How, how the fruit trees, how the fruit trees doing? How sparky your dog doing? Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it's like, how do you need a guide for that? You know, and, and, and what yeah. it does to me is it shows, it shows, it shows this elitist attitude mm-hmm. because most of these things are written by uh, uh, keyboard warriors that hardly ever <laughs> fucking touch grass, hardly ever touch grass, let alone go out and talk to anybody outside of their political uh, affiliation. You know what I mean? And to me, mm-hmm. I, I, I constantly talk to people, that are outside my affiliation. I have dropped zero of my friends that are absolutely batshit crazy because I just still love them to death. And they've never, you know, given me any reason other than just having ridiculously abhorrent views sometimes other than to hate them. So I, I don't understand why can't I break bread with them just because I disagree with them on, on, you know, yeah. fiscal conservatism. Look, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend it doesn't take emotional energy. There's a little bit of a reason why I'm not on this car ride around Cleveland right now with everybody. <laughs> like, I needed a break. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> I'm just, I took my break. I went on my run. I'm recharged and I'm, I'm ready to go. So I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, invalidate the emotional energy that it will take and that sometimes, you know, there's all kinds of other things going on in families that can make a, a dynamic challenging and emotionally straining. But like, I don't know, that's like, it's like life. It's like, it's life. It's every, it's everywhere. Yeah. And I just, I do think yeah. that you should be, if anything, more compassion and understanding with the people who like wiped your butt as a child <laughs> and, you know, will take yeah. care of your old age than the people who are just like strangers in the street or whatever. So I don't know. I, I, I agree. I agree totally. And, and, and yeah, I pre- appreciate you letting me kind of vent on that a little bit. And I, and I will just last little quick thing I'll say is, that, yeah, definitely. I'm not like a, I'm not like a gay son going home to their uncle and grandpa yeah. who hate yeah. people. So yeah, I, I definitely, I'm not speaking for everybody. So anybody in chat or listening, I, I'm merely just from my own point of view, I'm not ascribing that this is how the world is. I do understand, like you're saying, it is very, very emotionally taxing for some individuals to go mm-hmm. home. Because they, they, they escaped a bad kind of thing. So I'm definitely not mm-hmm, saying mm-hmm. like that. But I, I just think that the overall attitude, I think that really, uh, like you said, are the people that used to wipe your butt. <laughs> I think we could give them <laughs> just a little bit more leeway than the random conservative that we fight with on Twitter. You know what I mean? Right. Like, we're, we're transposing too much of that. We, you know, when you, when you do a daily kind of, you know, defending of your views online. You know, those are those are strangers, man. This isn't the lady who wiped your butt. And even if though she might be a Bible thumping conservative like you, you still gotta love her no matter what she thinks that's just my opinion right well look i, I appreciate you calling in cr because i think that's a topic that's on a lot of people's minds and i think you mooted it very nicely and i thank you for letting me vent have a wonderful weekend you too keep the faith cr day long time no chat how are you Bree. oh sorry it went out but can you hear me 
I I can hear you. It's, it's you. been too long since I, we chatted on here. I've missed you. This is so great. I'm so glad you did this. I am too. What are what have you been up to? What's on your mind? How was your holiday? My holiday was actually really, really nice. Um, last year was kind of rough given some of the stuff I went through personally. So this was a nice return to somewhat a sense of normalcy. So I'm really grateful for that. I do want to talk a little bit because part of it, for those who don't know, I'm not far from where the Virginia shooting stuff was. Um, mm. But I'll save that at the end because I had like a personal family member. But as far as... I, I always had this question. So I was going to disagree with CR until he said his last statement. Because mm-hmm. like, in my opinion, but then I thought he covered it nicely with that. Because I'm like, to me, this is how I view it. It's all about having two people choosing to be in a relationship versus being right. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, if I value our relationship more than this situation or our disagreement, I'm just going to put the disagreement in Pandora's box and keep it moving. <laughs> I don't see the point. Like, we're not about, you're not going to have some epiphany. You're not going to just be like, I, I'm converting now to leftism. It's not going to be what it is. So, but I did have a question. So I watched the segment with you and Robbie, and I think mm-hmm. this is why I get confused. I'm like, is this whole Thanksgiving discourse foreign to me because I'm black? Like, right. not, not trying to be funny, but like, it wasn't until like, I was in an interracial relationship that I actually realized, oh, y'all really be going to y'all family's house and you be having these people that's like, diametrically opposed to each other because i mean you throw a rock at black people and most likely they're gonna be democrats so it's not that deep like there's nothing mm-hmm. to talk about mm-hmm. but I, i'm like oh y'all really just sit here and talk about this wow white people are interesting like this is some fascinating stuff so like i can't really relate to it outside of that situation though yeah i definitely felt like that was i mean that was reluctant to say it on rising because you know how the rising audience is if i mention the fact that you know race exists i'll get called <laughs> You know, every name in the book. So I just was trying to steer clear of that in that particular context. But 100% it has to do with race. Like, 100%. Like, I am not, like, I am an outlier because I'm I'm so left. But I yeah. keep my thoughts and feelings to myself. And to the extent, like, it's just not that serious. Also, I think there's a, a certain degree of uh, maybe, like, a cultural, like, respect thing where I'm just not even trying to step to my elders like that and, like, convince them of anything. It's just, like... Truly not what we're talking about. So I don't know. Like I, 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 we're, we have some, we have a lot of like non-family friends that are often at Thanksgiving, especially when we were in New York, we would take in all the stragglers because you know, everybody passes through New York and there are a lot of like friends of ours or colleagues of my mom or whatnot that used to come through. And there are times that those people, and that, that's like a racially diverse group. And there are times that those people have, thoughts and feelings that are a little more outside of the norm. But my family like likes to debate, likes to have political conversations and it doesn't get heated even when politics comes up. But I just can't imagine in like my family, family context with like my aunts or like grandparents and cousins and things like that, that it would ever be a knockdown drag out, drag out fight because frankly, none of us are supportive of any kind of brand of politics that's openly antagonistic to who we are as human beings, at least as black human beings. There may or may not be some homophobes in the, in the mix, but honestly, I've never encountered that in my family. No, I totally agree with you. Like, to be completely honest, I'm like, you're more likely to have a fight over who messed up the mac and cheese, which is, right. again, top, like you said, than you are about politics. And so it was, I don't know, I guess for me, not everyone has the gift of debate. And to be honest, sometimes like 
I don't enjoy debating. I feel like I've been trying to practice it more. I don't enjoy it, but yeah. I do get that some people, I'm like, I've watched friends or family members not communicate anymore over stuff that I'm like, at the end of the day, like, neither, both of us are in the same hellhole. Like, it's not like <laughs> either one of you are getting over. It's like you're fighting the people you should be in solidarity with. And so, I don't know. I don't like it, but that is what yeah. it is on that but the shooting situation was weird so i just wanted to i mean everyone kind of probably knows what happened i i did have a first account from a family member of mine which it was wild because i read his experience because my cousin his mom posted it but i didn't know it was a shooting until afterwards but essentially he had just clocked into work with his friends and they were in the break room like they normally are and he said out of nowhere the person walked in and just started shooting and it was by the great friend who who was working at the Walmart when it happened yeah it's my cousin yeah oh my and goodness okay he's yeah so like i remember he just said essentially what his mom said was that he walked the guy they all hang out in the break room when they lock clock in or something like clock in or something and he said that the manager just walked in and started shooting. And he was like, by the grace of God, he flipped the table over. Like he flipped the table so that he was using it as a shield. And he said, oh. at some point, the guy stopped and went to the hallway and started shooting. And he was like, that was the only reason he didn't die. And like, I think for me, I'm such an empath. So putting myself in the mindset, even if you survive, like the amount of PTSD and torture that comes from that entire scenario, which is wild. But then what makes it terrible worse is that this past few days around Thanksgiving, people were calling in false shooter alerts. Mm. And so like, like case in point, my mom was going to the Walmart that's a little closer to us. Um, and she was like, everybody was running out the store. She was like, oh my God, what's going on? And it was because somebody was like, active shooter, active shooter. But they've been saying that's been going around like in the region. And I don't know, to me, that's just lowered and low. Like if you don't want to go to work that day, use some other excuse. Like don't, I don't know, that bothered me a lot. And so I hope that, I say this to say like, please make sure you encourage people not to do silly things like that mm -hmm. because, you know, it's, it's getting weird to not feel safe anywhere, I think. And you try not to be paranoid, but oh, it's I getting mean, closer to home. Yeah, I mean, so the 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 shooter in that in that scenario was an an employee also, right? Yes, they were. So they, they so your your cousin knew, I presume, knew the the shooter. Yeah, yeah. yeah did right. he say anything about how unexpected it was, or you know, He's, I don't know about the, about yeah. the person? Like, did was it unsurprised? I mean, like, obviously, no one expects for a coworker of them theirs to come up and and do something so horrible, but yeah. I haven't, he's been kind of overwhelmed with like, you know, family reaching out. So I haven't yeah. talked to him personally, but yeah. from what I gathered, it was a total unexpected, like what the heck is going on moment. And again, everybody's acting in crisis. Like, you know, like tensions are high. Everything is like, oh my God, fight or flight. So I don't think anyone would think something like that would happen. So for me, I don't know. I got it the next day. So if she hears this, is fine. We had a conversation. She'll be all right. So the next day, <laughs> this girl that lives here in Chesapeake, actually, where it happened, I'm not far from there, but like she posted about, it's not the gun. The gun is neutral and blah, 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 blah. blah. And it just seems so tone deaf, yeah. like given what had just happened. And like, normally I let stuff go, but that one, one, that was one where I was like, you know, let me engage respectfully. And I was just like, this amoral attitude towards gun 
guns isn't really productive to the conversation about not only how do we limit gun death, but more importantly, eradicate just eradicate this culture of violence that we have. Like violence is normalizing how we talk to each other, how we treat each other emotionally, physically, et cetera. I'm like, this is a uniquely American problem. Sans maybe some religious zealots in like the Middle East and other countries. So I don't know. This is weird. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I expect we'll hear a lot more. I mean, do we know anything about where he got the gun and somebody said he red flag laws that yeah, did not work? They, I thought I read that he actually got the gun like earlier that day. Like it was super easy. Yeah, I think I read that too. But do we know where? <laughs> I don't know. I have to look into that portion. But to me, I'm just like, wow, like I could just wake up. Like, I mean, I, I mean, it's not a secret. Like my partner was, was shot and killed as well. And so I just think yeah. about that a lot. Like, oh, you can wake up one day, be angry, grab a thing and kill people. And that was the thing, like the, the shooter's manifesto, whatever, this pieces that I've seen, it's like, oh, I wish my parents had recognized when I was having social issues and tried to intervene. I'm paraphrasing. And I'm just like, this is very methodical. Like it wasn't reading what I read. I was like, this person... Of course, you have to be, there's a level of dysfunction to do something like that. But there, to me, it felt like, no, he has a sense of what he's doing, but he's deflecting the blame. So, yeah, he said in the death note on his phone, I'm reading this off of CNN, the associates, meaning his coworkers, he perceives, this is obviously his perception. The associates yeah. gave me evil, twisted grins, mocked me and celebrated my downfall the last day. That's why they suffer the same fate as me. I wish I could have saved everyone from myself. My God, forgive me for what I'm going to do. Oof. I mean, yeah, it's, like your your point about the ease of it all is an important one. And that's what makes the conversation about it's not the gun so callous feeling. Because, look, however you feel, it's tr- it's like it's just statistical truth that suicide rates are higher in states where it's easier to get a gun. Because yeah. people, you know, people act impulsively. They do it and there's no coming back from it versus if you have to choose another method that's less conclusive, you know, that yeah. can be kind of in between. You take pills, but maybe subconsciously don't want to die. So you don't take enough pills and then you get the help that you need, hopefully, yeah. in, the, in that interim phase. But people who get guns, I mean, I, I, I actually, you know, a cousin of mine, one of my first cousins actually killed themselves last year. And this was a big conversation. <laughs> Because they were going through a bunch of other stresses in their life that were significant mm-hmm. and compounding. But what would have happened, but for, they were, they had been in the armed forces and had access to the gun. Mm. You know, it's like, it's, it's horrible. And to, yeah. and to try to pretend like the, the, the accessibility of the means of death isn't a huge factor in all of these tragedies. It's so tone deaf. Yeah. And that's the thing for me, because I was looking at what we were, how I approached it. I was like, continue what you're saying i'm like taking this neutral approach to like guns to me it like obscures the fact that inherently guns are a weapon of violence i was like yes car deaths you can die in accidents that's high whatever the case is but they have a primary function of transportation so it's not the same as like hey if you get a gun you're not getting it to just go play paint a paintball or something and i don't think i think in our culture we've sort of normalize like oh no if i get this is my issue is because so many of us are not taught conflict resolution or de-escalation so guns become the first line of retort Mm -hmm. like you stepped on my jordans i shot you Mm -hmm. you 
in my you know situation, my partner, like I'm upset about a decision I made and I feel like you're the closest person to it. So I'm going to kill you. And yeah. it's like, how do we, I often think, cause I'm not a person who thinks that people are inherently evil. I know everybody has their different takes on that. But to me, I feel like we've created a Petri dish where these types of outcomes are to be expected, whether it be, like you said, the economic issues, the the food issues, the mental health, lack of health care, et cetera, et cetera. So you throw guns in the mix and it's like, okay, finally, a method with which we can let out our rage. And even if we get all the policy prescriptions right, my fear is until we have that qualitative change inside, I don't know if it'll really matter. Like if you ban all the guns, violence will just manifest in a different way because people haven't dealt with the violence yet, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there was also that horrible um, stabbing that just happened uh, on a college campus, and I'm forgetting where that was. Oh, you're talking um, about UVA? Was it also at UVA? I think, so. I know there was a killing at UVA. Can y'all, like, Virginia, can y'all, like, do we need to put some blood on the post, doorpost? Like, please skip over because we're tired. But, yeah, that was terrible. Like, yeah. Oh no, it was it was in I think was it in oh, I know. Idaho. Yeah. Sorry, we just covered this on on Rising earlier this week, but um yeah, someone came in. Maybe something has happened. Maybe they know more now than when we recorded a few days ago. I haven't followed up. But someone just came into this house, this dorm where there were a bunch of students that lived there. There were three it was like a three family house that was, you know, people lived on all three floors. And they bypassed the first floor and then just stabbed like five or six people in their beds. And there's no leads on who did it there. You know, they don't think it's like, a. you know, one of them was in bed. One of the girls was in bed with her boyfriend. He stabbed the, the stabber, stabbed them both. So it's not like I, I do. I absolutely think that it's much harder, obviously, to kill people by stabbing and the, yeah. the volume is much lower. But there does seem to be something that's like essentially going on here. Um, yeah. And the people who are all of these crisis. I mean, we, we had an episode here on um, Colin, which is one of the most you know, gripping and emotionally powerful and vulnerable episodes I think we've done where two two of our members of the community here talked about how close they came to shooting their own high school, shooting up their own high schools. And we talked through like how they were feeling and what, what was, you know, drawing them to want to do that. And then what ultimately kept them from doing it, how they feel now years later, reflecting back on it. And I really appreciate both of them being so vulnerable because I, you know, like, as leftists and wanting there to be gun control, there's sometimes I think a way that we can downplay the value of mental health and like community support because it doesn't, we don't want that to be an excuse to not do gun control. And I understand that. But also when you talk to these people and when you look at like the statements, like this um, Walmart shooter, you can't ignore the, that the but for factor could also be people feeling less disconnected and having more mental health support and feeling like they're a member of a community and having community like plugins that, you know, that so that, to cut through the isolation that so many of us feel today where we're just on the internet and not in a bowling league or not in a church or not in a, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, whatever kind of clubs people used to have. No, but I think that's totally right. And we, I think by allowing, I'm not trying to make it a, a versus versus thing, but I think by allowing a lot of conservative think tanks or, you know, ideology to sort of hijack a lot of those, that's the word community or the sense of family and belonging. 
was a terrible misstep on our on our behalf because it's like those are important whether we want to acknowledge it or not they are critical to people's overall well-being and happiness and unfortunately as a society i don't think we measure the satisfaction of of the of the average american isn't really factored into how quote unquote great america is uh-huh. and i think that's the worst thing imaginable because if the people it's like when you work at a job and you're just like everybody hates the job but like the, we're making record profits but everyone's uh-huh. miserable uh-huh. Just trying, not saying death is like clocking out but like people are checking out whether it be drugs coping or whatever they're doing and we just like oh if this one dies we got another 15 in the back and i hate that yeah i mean it's not i don't know we'll learn more about what was going on in those walmart keys but if it, it's, it's and this this person's like satisfaction on the job obviously has some. I mean, his own statements say that it's obviously yeah. has something to do with how he felt about work. And like you can't. It's hard in these situations because if you bring up any one factor, it's easy to use that as a as a way to like downplay anything else, right? But like these things are multifactorial, and you can't ignore this toxic mix of late stage capitalism that is having all of these horrible downstream effects. And I don't know who it helps to not pay attention to the pattern of where these things are happening. You know, we've seen, I think some of the worst, I mean, the most explicit downplaying of um, factors with respect to the LGBTQIA shooting. Like the, the conservative, I mean, I don't even want to call them conservatives because it's almost ideologically diffused at this point. There are a lot of people who are identifying a lot of ways who are very openly saying, Basically, they deserved it. Um, groomer, groomer, groomer. Yeah, that's. And they're they're not even backing down from it. For like, usually there's like a month, like a week grace period of like, oh, this is awkward for us in our messaging. Let me just cool my jets and give thoughts and prayers. But so many folks are just doubling down this time around in a way that is frankly terrifying. Yes. And yes. I'm not, I, I've been giving some thought to like how to address address that on rising, knowing what the audience composition is. And I don't, I don't know, like how at some point do you appeal to someone's humanity when in the face of an event that should obviously trigger an appeal to their humanity? If that, if all of these dead people weren't enough, yeah, like how do you even begin, how do you even begin to communicate past that? And I've been thinking about that a lot, like, cause I've been really contemplating like, oh, should I run or what should I do? Or how do I feel? What can I do to serve? And I think the problem is it's twofold. You have the people like who are just using this rhetoric saying, thank God they're dead. That's at five less sissies to deal with or whatever the pastor, one of those pastors said. Mm-hmm. But then you also have people who want to give you thoughts and prayers. But those thoughts and prayers come after they just left a meeting talking about how they want to strip away our rights. So yeah. it's kind of like all of this can exist. You can't throw the rock and then hide your hand. But then also, if you just stand in front of me and break the glass, I'm like, and I, I feel like, I don't know if calling out the hypocrisy works because it's like, you can't say that you believe in the basicness of humanity if you don't also allow people to have the freedom to do things that you might disagree with. But at this point, we don't have, like for the pastor's example, we don't have a super large, strong left spiritualist, you know, figureheads that can kind of come out and was it uh, counterpoint that. Mm-hmm. But then we also don't have people who are really invested in or understanding of all. Like when I think about LGBTQ plus people, like I hate the fact that Pete Buttigieg is probably the most 
prominent figure. And I'm like, he's literally not going to do anything about focusing on that. He doesn't, I don't think he has the rhetorical skill to really articulate a message in a way that can bring everybody in. He doesn't have the emotional skill. Like watching him try to talk about LGBTQ stuff on the Buddha judge documentary, the mayor Pete documentary and mm-hmm. watching his husband watch him and re- and watching Chaston realize that his husband is like not able to make a basic statement to a bunch of gay kids like oh look what I've been able to achieve and life gets better and you should be proud of who you are it was it's like I didn't enjoy watching that it was kind of startling and yeah. you know jarring um I but, look forward but, to seeing how you deal with it though yeah. because I mean, one thing I have had is that sometimes when folks are having these conversations, I, I wonder, like, instead of arguing, it, like, sometimes, like, there's, there's like, an assumption that people don't say out loud that, mm-hmm. even like, even people who are thinking they're having, quote, unquote, intellectual conversations about, like, some niche aspect of it, um, not niche, but, you know, some narrow, narrower argument than I hate trans people, they'll say, Oh well, I I support trans people being allowed to live their lives, but I'm against um, sure. you know gender affirming therapy. And so you have these kind of debates that are detached from the the basic kind of human rights principle, and and not mm-hmm. really detached, obviously, but that they seem more um, scientific or like less cultural and more like fact based or something like that. And sometimes I just wish there was in the context of even those conversations statements like like forcing everybody in the conversation to say, I believe trans people, I believe LGBTQIA people deserve to live safely and strongly condemn any acts of violence against them. Because sometimes yes. I think in those conversations, people hide behind that they're having a more clinical conversation about something else, but actually would not be willing to make that affirmation if pushed. And so yes. I just want to see who's in good faith and who's bad faith by making sure that like somewhere in the conversation, someone says, well, just to be clear, I affirm the health and safety and happiness of members of the LGBTQIA community, regardless of how you fall on this issue. And I strongly condemn the the action, the hate, you know, these kind of hate crimes because they're denying any connection between between the two. Because they're not most people. A lot of people trans. I think trans identity is like a one percent like of the world population. Most people, especially some of the most vocal people have probably never knowingly met a trans person. And we're not, I'm not trans, but like people aren't often in the room defending themselves or, and so it's a lot of people talking about communities that they actually don't have much experience with. And it becomes really frustrating because it's like, if this was insert any other group, everyone would see the, the logical fallacies or how atrocious it is. Like, if we had people walking around still talking about eugenics and how black people were, are just way more stupid than white people, everyone would be, be justified the outrage. But you take that same concept and just say a person who's trans is, is, is mentally insane or, hey, gay people are insane. They're groomers and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, how do y'all get to these like tropes that are like, huh? Like, I don't know. Yeah. The groomer. We're back and she's just top tier. Let me bring energy back up sorry <laughs> sorry no i know <laughs> but no it's important i mean i i feel like i've kind of been selfishly detached from the news and i just was sitting down about an hour before i scheduled this call trying to play some catch up and it is it's a lot it's it's a lot um and it, it is it is it does it does feel good to be able to process some of it with people who are so compassionate like yourself day Thank um you. 
Thank you. Thank you. And I'm glad you were able to um, get some joy out of this of this holiday season. Oh, yes. Listen, I appreciate you doing this. It felt good to kind of vent because I've had this bottled up. So thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, for but sure. I look forward to seeing what you say. I know you always handle things with tact and you always come at things from a humanist perspective. So I want you to know you are appreciated in my Tupac voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Look, everybody, we need you. We need you doing a Tupac voice to kind of wash the bitterness of out of our ears of um, old dude doing it. Um, oh, oh, what's his face? Oh my King gosh, Jeffries. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was right. like corn, boo, tomatoes. <laughs> oh boy! All right, thanks, Jay. Keep the <laughs> see you. You too. Uh, BK, what's on your mind? How are you doing this evening? It's it's funny you say I actually uh, just woke up, um, but um, congratulations! I support it. I didn't get out of bed until two p.m. No judgment here. Yeah, it's two p.m. over here when uh, your noti- the notification went off and it woke me up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't uh, call in to talk about this, but I do want to just quickly mention that I have a friend who uh, um, adopted a trans foster kid the other day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked her, I was like, are you afraid of people calling you a groomer? And she said, who the fuck would call me that? And uh, then I was like, oh, man, maybe I should unplug from the news for a while. Because <laughs> like, she's just like in the like, she was just legitimately like, who would what? You know, yeah. and, uh, and and it's like it's it's real how much it affects me. Like, um, like I'm I'm only I'm a few months younger than you. And like mm-hmm. I came out. um as lesbian when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and like the shit I got made it so that like, I'm, 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 I'm afraid to be alone in a room with a kid. Mm. Um, mm. So like, you know, it's real. <laughs> Just like, yeah. want to quickly say that. Um, yeah. I, it, it, I, it's hard. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, this might be a weird thing to be, but like, I saw a documentary like many years ago about like in the mid nineties, uh, in Ber- in uh, Bakersfield, California, there was like a Salem witch kind of situation where like every parent in town was being accused of being a child molester. Mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do with like homosexuality or anything. It was just like all the working class parents were being accused by the, like the cops just thought everyone was a child molester. And they would like interview these kids and like convince the kids to say that the parents were abusing them. And like years later when these adults, you know, then when they when the kids grew up they said that they were like way traumatized as far as like how they dealt with kids and like i relate to like i look back at that mm. um yeah it's 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 t- like this whole conversation is tough because i mean one of the best meme not best but you know one of the things of most evocative memes around the groomer discourse and drag night and all of that is are the ones that say you know parents are like oh i can't you know i can't trust this person because they take their kids to drag night let's go to church instead right <laughs> you know <laughs> obviously pointing to the fact that we're so much of molestation and it's like a real issue but where so much of this is happening is in the home from relatives and in institutions like the church that have been shielded for generate for generations from any kind of accountability or recompense so it's 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 difficult because none of us want to downplay the reality that you know a lot of kids are vulnerable but juxtaposed with this complete deflection or projection onto a 
a community that has nothing to do with any of it. And these events that at which zero people have ever been accused of um, being molested at is is a kind of dissonance that is really difficult to grapple with. And I and I see it. It's, it's definitely growing. There's this weird there's this weird tension between the reality that like post midterms, I would have this like glimmer of hope, like because that particular culture war beat didn't seem to have gotten Republicans any returns, maybe they'll back off of this. Maybe they realize that walking around stigmatizing kids and, you know, attacking the one like trans child in the whole public school system in Utah doesn't exactly endear them to parents. Maybe they'll mm-hmm. back off. But at the same time that I think there might be like a political a, like a political shift over to stuff that works better. It's obviously true that individuals who are very plugged in, who are very online, who are very into groomer discourse, who are very into, you know, all of the other kind of anti-Semitic white power, all of the stuff that's been going on, are motivated enough still to get a gun and shoot up nightclubs and shoot up Walmart and shoot up supermarkets and shoot up elementary schools. So I don't, I don't know, like, it's hard to tell how, like, if we're on an upswing or on a downswing, because the people who are most vulnerable to being radicalized, it doesn't mean they don't need to win. You know, Republicans don't need to win midterms or have successful midterms for them to still be like part of that subculture and motivated by that subculture. I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but you, you know how Gallagher died the other day? No. Um, so Gallagher died, uh, the guy that hit the watermelons. Um, oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, and uh, back in 2011, he gave a wildly entertaining interview with Mark Marin on WTF, huh. and I've I've been wondering lately if that was actually like a, I don't know what you would call it, like a, I think it was like a cult- cultural shifting thing that happened. Like that was the most popular co- podcast among like entertainment people in LA from like mm-hmm. 2010 to 2013. And I was, like, there during those years, and, like, it wasn't cool to be a lesbian in L.A. in 2010. And by 2013, it was very cool. And, uh, like, <laughs> I'm, like my late 20s, I had a lot of fun, like, in, in a way that, like, my late teens and early 20s in that same area was, like, not fun. And, uh, like, it, Mark Maron's like, why do you do all this gay bashing comedy? And he's like, because it's funny and people laugh at it. And it's just, like, a half hour of Mark Maron Wait, being I like, don't... I... I don't know Gallagher as doing anything but smashing the watermelon. So he was he did right. gay bashing comedy. Yeah, so he totally could have been like, "Isn't it cool that I had a career and I'm a household name from bashing watermelons?" But instead, because of this interview, he became famous for being bitter. Like he was, uh, he, he expressed being like angry that he didn't get like the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. <laughs> like he he believed himself to be a much greater talent than just smashing watermelons. Um, and so I think a lot of people came away from that interview like, like I better never bash gays anymore. I'm gonna do an interview with my like, especially because it's like if you're in comedy, like you're you're like by 2011, 2012, it was like your your legacy will be cemented on this particular podcast, mm-hmm. um, and you don't want your legacy to be a gay basher. And then when like uh, the the general casual public started to become like more aware of like. Uh, people being trans and coming out as trans. I think there was like like on the West Coast, LA especially, this like overcorrection of like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be caught look, looking like Gallagher again. Um, mm. I don't know. It's just 
maybe I'm wrong, but you know, so, it's, it's hard I to mean, know so, with cultural shifts. So this is a, this is an argument for the value of pre- prominent cultural taste setters like Mark Marin doing interviews with people, like offering really good pushback and in interviews to set the cultural tone of like what is and isn't acceptable. Yeah, and when I like the jokes that Gallagher was making, don't seem crazy different to me from Chappelle's jokes. <laughs> like I was defending Chappelle for a while, but um, I just wasn't being radical enough. <laughs> Interesting. I'm gonna, I, I that's now. so weird. Like I've never. I mean, I just. I guess I don't pay that much attention to Gallagher, but I. Well, I didn't I have either. No but idea. he re-released it the other day because he died, so it's like available for free on iTunes, and it's only like a half hour. It's super entertaining. I highly suggest. Okay. Um, I'll take a look. I'll, I'll, I'll add that to my key. Maybe I'll listen to it on my flight home. Um, but I, I, I wanted to just quickly um, give some guest recommendations because uh, like, I don't understand this petrol dollar thing. And I heard you say that you just want to talk to people who are really nice to you. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's two people who are like famous in poker that are like famous for being nice. Um, and there's one guy who's like, he didn't make his, he's a billionaire, but he made all his money. He's not like a, pro poker player he's just famous within poker mm. uh named bill perkins and his twitter is uh just bp22 uh b as in boy uh p as in i don't know person 22 <laughs> and uh like i i feel like he must you know because if he's made his billions off of trading oil he must understand like how the petrodollar like mm. i just wish i understood that so I, and like he's he's already given interviews and he's like a really good interviewer and uh this guy mike mcdonald uh is a crypto expert and neither of them have anything to sell. Oh, and Bill Perkins wrote a book called uh, die with zero about giving away all your money before you die. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder like, like what it would look like for a leftist to give away all their money before, if they had billions. Right. Um, and also they both seem like they could be pulled to the left. Like, like they're really suspicious of the stuff going on in Ukraine. I think it's cause like there's so many Europeans in poker um, that like, well, anyway, uh, it just, I want to hear from everyone else. So I'll just and uh, Mike McDonald is uh, Mike McDonald eighty nine on Twitter, and okay. he seems to like always know when there's like a scam that's about to crash the market. Um, so he's uh, saved me a lot of money because I like I play illegal online poker. That's why I was up all night, and like the way <laughs> the way that I play it is with Bitcoin. Um, so I had this like debate on Jonathan's call in the other day about whether uh-huh. or not Bitcoin is a real currency and. He sounded really, you know, smart and educated. And I just sound like a stoner who's like, but I use the Bitcoin, <laughs> so I don't. Um, so, yeah, I just wish yeah. I. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate that because I actually was thinking to myself, I was catching up on some um, Sam Bankman Freed news and trying to figure out who would be a good crypto guest. I really want someone who I could ask specific questions about, not just like kind of a mm-hmm. journalist who writes about it. But I want to be able to yeah. ask about like actually how it works. Yeah, and Mike McDonald. Other people have written about how it works. Yeah, Mike McDonald actually gets it, and the proof that he actually gets it is that he's been making billions. I mean, I don't know about billions, but I mean, he definitely made at least like uh, he was like a multi multi millionaire before the crypto thing exploded. He was early into Bitcoin, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I would bet he's a billionaire. Um, mm-hmm. And he's clearly like continued to like you can tell from his Twitter Twitter feed um, that. And, and, like, I don't understand, like, 80% of his tweets because I don't understand so much about right. crypto. But, like, it's mostly, like, trolling and, like, making fun of the stuff. But it's, like, he's, clear, he's clearly not knowledgeable enough to 
be able to make fun of it if that makes sense but yeah, also no, he has I nothing to sell I, so that's why I, he's okay. I, I appreciate that that reg pk before i move on though i did want to ask you one other thing um because the one of the the difficult aspects that i i wrestle with is that like my whole thing i'm going to go back to groomer discourses for a second yeah, my yeah. Whole thing has always been to identify like the exes at the left of the left so that we can criticize them from the left and not use those as an as a jumping point to go off and have people move to the right. So I write about overreaches of identity, weaponized identity politics and, you know, a cultural appropriation discourse and some of these things that have got like jumped the shark as it were. And I wonder what you make of like instances like the Balenciaga teddy bear. Have you been following that story? No, I don't know what that is. Sorry. So I follow like are... almost everything you do. I don't know how I miss anything. <laughs> no, I, I haven't been part of this discourse, okay. but Balenciaga, the luxury brand released an ad that had um, little teddy bears and like kind of leather chaps and harnesses like BDSM and little kids like holding the teddy bear. And then in like some of the ads, like the pictures in the background, there's like a table with like stuff scattered all over it. And one of the papers that are scattered on the table is from a First Amendment Supreme Court case. Um, that's, a, you know, a lot of the First Amendment cases deal with pornography and this one deals with you know child pornography. And so people are saying this is, you know, the you know liberals pressing their grooming agenda by hiding this kind of iconography in ads. Like, why would you have children holding a BSM bear and then also the the the, the child pornography Supreme Court decision in the background? And and I, I don't wonder. I, like, it, it seems to me not helpful. Let's see how gonna be doing this. <laughs> But it, it is also difficult to like weigh in on that kind of discourse about feeling like you're on the side of people who I think are making much more of it and blaming all like trans people or all you know LGBT people for what some corporate luxury brand is doing. And like, if I were a conservative at that corporate luxury brand and I hated trans people, that's what I would do. Like, I don't know who did that. I don't know who decided that. I just heard about this just now, but. Um, it doesn't sound like a community member made that decision. Yeah. Well, or, um, or there's this thing that happens sometimes with black elites, for example. Well, they will make ridiculous, toxic decisions that aren't actually good for the black community. But from their kind of class privilege position, they would rather, you know. They, it compares in that way to promoting child pornography. Well, I mean, there's, there's something. Look, if you're an artist, there's something edgy. I, I get the idea of doing something that's like edgy and subversive and like you just care about the aesthetic and not the politics of it like i can understand how a decision like that gets made even if it's obviously ill-advised you know like i can i can understand someone saying oh like no one's gonna look at the fine print but i know it's like it's like writing it's like hiding boners in disney films you know? <laughs> like that's the thing that, that happened was that grooming that, i mean I, I don't know but i guess you don't yeah I, I was listening to like Ezra Klein's podcast, like, and he had like a fill-in guest who's so, like this Catholic New York Times dude who had a guest on, and they were like, "Can you believe that uh, there's ads for polyamorous online dating? Like, that's basically advertising BDSM." And like, as someone in a polyamorous family, I found that really offensive. Wait, even what, though what is, B, what is the connection between being polyamorous and BDSM? That's that's what exactly that's how I felt. I was like, well, that's offensive because like I'm I have a poly, I'm in a polyamorous family and there's kids in the household and we're not just exposing little kids to BDSM, you know. But it was like 
that jump was made um, on a New York Times podcast that I found really offensive. So I do feel yeah. like, obviously, us in this community, like, we can make this line. Like, we draw this line. I don't, I don't know. But yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe there's just, I don't know, what do you make of it? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like, again, I have no idea who is making these kinds of decisions, but it just does seem like very unhelpful. And sometimes I'm like, if I, if I were a member of the community that's getting targeted with the backlash of this, I feel like I would very much want, I would want, I would want to like have the people who are making these kinds of decisions pay because they're not having to live with the consequences of it. Especially if they're not even a member of my own community, especially if it's just some like, like you say, some straight conservatives, muckety muck at one of these mags saying, wouldn't this be funny and cute and subversive and cool? And sometimes I like, I don't know, I feel I've taken that on as a black person, like, oh, I'm gonna, I know that I have the, you know, the identity based protection, whether or not it's right to make some of these critiques of the way that race is weaponized and the like. And so I'm, I'm taking that on as my responsibility. I don't obviously feel the same way. I, I don't feel like it's comfortable wading into other people's business and saying, you know, to protect the broader interests of this community, we should be critical of the way that these people are behaving, whether it's Balenciaga or some other kind of like overreach. But like, it does, it does strike me that like instances like this, which are seem pretty cut and dry, just like a why, like why? <laughs> yeah. And now like Kim Kardashian and all of these, you know, perceived as left or liberal at least, characters are being asked to like disavow Balenciaga, you wear Balenciaga, you've modeled for Balenciaga. And you can see how they're they're expanding the stuff. They're using an instance like this to then say oh, liberals basically are tolerant of grooming. Yeah, I mean I guess I wonder if it's like like, you know, we both remember the early aughts when it was like every time there was a terrorism, Muslims were asked, like, why aren't you disavowing this? And it's like right. Right. Well, you, the the microphone is only in my face after you've asked me to disavow it. You weren't here when we were talking shit about it. Right. So I wonder if there's a little bit of that, but like on Twitter, are trans people defending it? <laughs> no, no. I mean, oh, okay. I don't think anybody's. Def- I mean, that's the thing. Nobody's defending it. But I will right. say that people criticizing it are on the right. So the silence of the left can start to seem like tacit endorsement. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's, yeah, that, that, that was what I was saying. Like, it reminds me of like the early aughts with like the, the, it seemed like there was silence on the part of like the Islamic community because the Islamic community didn't have a voice in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, for example, if I did a radar condemning Balenciaga, you could argue that that's like me showing conservatives that you can be on the left and not be okay with this kind of stuff. But my concern is that sometimes it's not clear whether Am I adding, am I like, you know, oh, I unintentionally adding the like pouring fuel flame on the fire of, you know, an event that ultimately is still going to make the quote unquote broad left look bad? Or am I actually carving out a position for the left to be critical of a thing that makes the left look more inviting? And it's, it's a very delicate line. It's a very fine line between those two things. I, can you, like, is a, is a way to tightrope walk it to say this is only newsworthy because it makes trans people look bad there is no newsworthiness for a story that doesn't make trans people look bad i i think i think so i think so i mean that's that's the task at hand to frame it in the context of the actual violence that's being done against members of the lgbtq community the violence that's happened as a consequence of people fanning flames like the balenciaga ad 
I mean, like, that's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, Robbie, for example, Robbie's stance on the show, generally speaking, is that when bad individuals do bad things, we should be careful about attributing blame to someone who, like, said something that may or may not have incited it. Because there have been these instances, like, let's say the Bernie supporter who shot the guy, the congressman at the baseball field, or, mm-hmm. you know, the way that there was a, the accusation that Gabby um, Giffords was shot because of a Sarah Palin ad where she had put a target on her. And that's, we've all kind of like, that's kind of a recreated memory. There was no target on her in an ad. That's just something that kind of, we, we sp- talked about it in the liberal media so much that way that we kind of like created, we created that false memory. So, and there are, there are times when it's much more explicit. A lot of these shooters do write about how they love Tucker Carlson and they like replacement theory. Like the Buffalo shooter, that's cut and dry. I think it's perfectly fair to say that the people who he cited as the reason for him doing it were responsible in some part for him doing it. Um, but yeah. so when we're, when we're talking about like this shooting, like Robbie's like, well, let's, let's take a pause until we find out more, which honestly, as a journalist, I don't think is wrong. Like, yeah. I think that's completely fair because also Pulse. We had the Pulse nightclub shooting where it turns out that the shooter didn't actually know it was a gay club when he went in there and he had tried another club first and couldn't get admission. And so it doesn't make it any less terrorizing to members of the community who feel targeted. And it certainly doesn't make it any less of a tragedy. But there's this way that the media narratives being one thing and then the other can make it look like the left is only invested in it because they can make some broader claim about victimhood and all of this stuff. And ultimately, when it all comes out in the wash, I think it hurts the people who are actually victimized in the event if we get the facts wrong. So I broadly yes. agree with, with Robbie on that. However, given how there's, there's a difference between saying like Tucker Carlson, you are responsible for someone shooting someone and like you should go to jail because you incited by it. And like what toxic mixture of discourse has c- created an atmosphere in which a community is so dehumanized that they are increasingly the target of these kinds of events. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of space for that in the conversation. So if I were to do something about like, let's say the Balenciaga situation, which I don't have no plans to do, this is just a hypothetical. Like I, I would want to be able to build all of that in, but who oh, honey, like, I don't know in a 15 minute segment <laughs> that we can like get through all of this, you know? Yeah. I wish I had something more helpful about that. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make you sit here and like work all this through with me. I've been, I've had you up here for like 30 minutes. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead to <laughs> I appreciate you, BK. No, I'm grateful to talk to you. Um, all yeah. right. Take care. Keep it safe. Uh, David, what's on your mind this evening? Oh, how you doing, Bree? Long time no see. I'm good. Long time no see. How was your holiday? It was great. It was great. A lot of good food. I had three houses to go to to do all of the Thanksgiving, but it was great. I I saw all my family. It was really grounding to come home and be around people that, you know, love you unconditionally. And what I realized was I am that uncle who wakes up and chews violence because I come home and I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. What do we think of Kanye? (laughs) What is happening? What what is the problem with Kyrie? What what are we going to do about our Black family? You know, so I take back what I said today then because it is possible to get in some conversations with black people with inter-black discourse. So I, I kind of want to know how did the Kyrie, we, we had a little bit of a Kyrie Kanye conversation, which was complicated by the fact that we have family friends staying with us 
one of whom is black and one of whom is Japanese, and one of the Japanese one has converted to Judaism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was, there was a, there's been a lot of like black Jewish discourse this holiday, but I want to know how it went down over on your end. Okay, so this conversation that we've actually been having for quite a while now. So my cousin Nicole, whose fiftieth birthday was on Thanksgiving, and okay. we're having a huge party for her tonight. So I can't, I, I won't be able to stay too long because I gotta get on the road for that. But she's the one who loves Kyrie, and she always says, "I love Kyrie, but I wish he would stop tweeting and play basketball." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. wait. Remember, uh, and I actually sent her a TikTok that can explain it a little bit better than I can, but I said, remember that Kyrie is a, a young guy. He doesn't actually, I don't think he necessarily is in touch with how, what he tweets in the moment of his learning as, as being a human being and, and experiencing life. When he tweets, he doesn't, I don't think he, he's realized that it's going to have or has the potential to have these huge outcomes. So like when he sent the tweet about, you know, the, the, the Negroes, the Hebrew, Hebrews to Negroes, mm-hmm. I don't think he ever thought that it would be, you know, what it is and what it became. And it's like, so my issue, my personal take on it to her was that I think people like Kyrie, because they have made it, because they have the money, because they have somewhat have the space to get educated on these things. When he sees that this tweet is blowing up, that's his cue to be like, oh, okay, I have to go like get educated on this real quick because I got to be ready for these questions. Like, don't get me wrong. The questions that he was asked in the original interview after a game were completely unfair because it was obvious that he wasn't going to be prepared to answer those types of questions, even though they did seem pretty honest. Like, don't get me wrong. Some of the the tropes in the movie, which I haven't seen the whole thing because it's like three hours long, but Uh um, there are some tropes in it that are obviously Uh anti-Semitic. But I think the question and the conversation that is getting swallowed up by the anti-Semitism of the situation is that, you know, a lot of Black men and and uh, the the Black diaspora in America doesn't really, we're struggling to find our place in America because we've never been really welcome in America, despite the fact that we built the country. So somebody like Kyrie, who is trying to find out his history, where his people come from, mm-hmm. where what what it, it, it sets you up to get into these situations. And I feel like Kyrie, where he could have done better is be ready to, you know, be able to say, I, I am completely against the trope that there is a Jewish cabal that controls all the media. However, I would like to have a conversation about why it seems that five people who control the vast majority of media can make a few phone calls and take away the wealth of two of the wealthiest black men in America. I think that is a question that a conversation that is worth having outside of these five people's Judaism. So, yeah, I mean, the, the conversation that's been had, and I had a little bit of an off the record. Well, I, I hope to get Norm Finkelstein on the show because, you know, we were, we had a kind of a casual conversation. I was trying to get him on. I didn't have time, but we ended up talking about it anyway in a conversation that would have been a great, for a great episode. And I told him, Norm, you should just let me record this conversation. This is all I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> um, but like, so, so let's start with the black version of this. Cause that's where we all feel comfortable. Right. There's a way that we all have learned and understand. We can talk about disparities mm-hmm. without it being about, black people intrinsically or like genetically or anything like that. So we can talk about poverty disparities, education disparities, um, disparate um, uh, criminalization, jail, jail, spending time in jail, arrest, all of those kinds of things. 
And we know how to say black people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system without saying black people are criminals, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we know mm-hmm. how to use the, that different language. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's something interesting about how we, it feels more uncomfortable, perhaps because we're not as practiced doing it, talking about the difference between saying, you know, there's a Jewish conspiracy to own Hollywood or, you know, the Jewish cabal doing X, Y, and this globalist, blah, 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 the things that get said versus, you know, there's a disproportionate representation of Jewish people in Hollywood. You know, Jewish people are like something, always a surprisingly small piece of the population, I think like 2% or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But obviously overrepresented in various spheres and are broadly ranked as a very, as a a disproportionately successful group economically in the United States of America. So like, it's, it's difficult because someone like Kanye might begin to raise a concern about the way that he's been treated in an industry where artists historically have less power, although compared to other artists, Kanye obviously has a lot more. And Jewish people may or may not be represented in that industry. And he conflates something into a thing that we wouldn't approve of, right? He basically does the equivalent of saying black people are criminals instead of saying I'm being exploited by this person, their their race, their um, religion isn't really germane to this, frankly. (laughs) Um, But how to have that conversation without making it about Jewishness. And it does seem to be like, there's this interesting thing that's happening now where black people, I think you're right, have been struggling to find their own narratives that make them feel like they have a place. Right. And some of it is misguided, I would argue. But there is this weird almost jealousy, like envy of Judaism. When you hear these people, the black Israelites, they talk like they want to be the chosen people. <laughs> like they, they, they are, they admire the kind of closeness of Jewish communities, the traditions that cause Jewish people to break bread together and live more closely together um, and support each other financially. And they want that for themselves. And they feel like they have to kind of appropriate it in a way that is insulting to Jewish people. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's a difficult situation because when you're talking about it with other black people, it can feel like not the same as I hate Jewish people. It feels more like I'm jealous of Jewish people and there's a resentment that can, is a guy, I guess a kind of hate, but also it's like kind of weird twisted admiration. And you know, it's being driven by this like ass backward, but almost like, like a sense of loss almost and like striving for something that gives me, I want to say sympathy for it, but makes me less willing to kind of, I don't know. It's it's complicated. It is a complicated thing. Like my the every family member that I've talked with, even the more conservative ones, and the the one that I'm thinking of is actually like a cousin who's married into the family. So he's actually he grew up very conservative, and like his point was, well, they're able to do it, and and, and I because I just before that I brought up the the fact that Martin Luther King. I believe in one of his speeches points out that the, the Jewish dollar circulates like nine times within that community before it ever leaves to the greater community, but the black dollar doesn't really do that at all. And his whole point was right. So why is it they're able to figure it out, but but we can't? And then he, he immediately linked that, like you say, to the, the, the black Israelite. When we try to do it, he said, but when we try to do it, oh, we get called out as anti-Semitic. We get called out as this and the other. And it's like, I said, and it's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. That's a, that's those are two differently. Those right. Two they're not they're not called because you try to like enrich your community economically. <laughs> <laughs> There's some other 
things that are being said here. Uh, there's more like some Holocaust denial in the movie. Like I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but. Right. That's, that's, and that's what's so painful about it, right? Because, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, I I have empathy for the instinct. Mm-hmm. I, I have empathy for the instinct to find your own narrative and origin story for people who had all of their kind of historic cultural origin stories stripped from them through through slavery. Like, I have a lot of right. empathy. Like, me personally, I don't celebrate Kwanzaa, but like, I I don't like when people make fun of Kwanzaa because I I again I have respect for the instinct. The instinct to want to find your own stuff that isn't just like the slave master's religion and the colonizer's right. religion, like you know. So, I, I like the even the Hotep stuff. Like we were kings and queens of Egypt. It irritates me because we're not from Egypt. Like, and we have our own beautiful history that you should like get into without having to go to the other side of Africa. But like, mm-hmm. I, I I like have compassion for, it and I'm not going to make fun of Hoteps in front of white people. Like that's just not what I'm going to do. Right. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. The, you know, and another thing about like, and this is kind of small, but I, I did end up seeing uh, Wakanda Forever uh, with my niece and nephew. And like, there's this line, not to spoil it, but there's a small line where they refer to one of the main characters as a person of the lost tribe. And I keep that keeps ringing in my head because the only thing I can make sense of for that to mean is that it has to be like, uh, uh, slaves that were stolen from Africa who literally lost their tribe and hearing that in the movie just like it was all I could think about so like there is this fact like you said there is this fascination about trying to find your place and how we fit into the American diaspora um, other, another question well, or rather to kind of try and keep it a little bit lighter. I did see your Instagram post of some of the food you cooked, but what else did you make and what are your favorites? So I have some feminist issues with Thanksgiving and my obligations, <laughs> but I'm going to put those to the side for a second. Um, so my mother historically doesn't like unhealthy food and it doesn't like macaroni and cheese. I, historically being brought up in these conditions, am obsessed with unhealthy food and obsessed with macaroni and cheese. So it became clear that we were not going to have macaroni and cheese at Thanksgiving unless I made it. So I have taken that upon myself. Additionally, my dad always used to make apple pies. And so it is a point of pride for me. And it makes me feel, you know, like he's still around in some way for me to make apple pies during Thanksgiving. And I also make carrot cakes because that was his big thing. We always got carrot cakes for our birthday and I love, it's my favorite cake and I just feel very nostalgic making those things. So I basically make what I want to exist (laughs) at Thanksgiving Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and no one is like asking me to, but I, I take that, I take that on. And then my mother obviously makes a turkey and a roast, which is always my favorite part. I, I don't care for turkey. Not roast. The the roast is delicious. And my mother also cares a lot about mashed potatoes. She loves mashed potatoes. Mm. I think they're fine. But my carb of choice is macaroni and cheese. And I hate stuffing. I wish that no one would make stuffing. I don't understand the point of stuffing. It's just wet. Oh, my God. I know. I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry. I know people feel very strongly about their stuffing. I don't get it. Are you a stuffing person? I am, but that's because my, okay, so my whole family, like, of course, as, as many people in the diaspora, we bond over food. And so, like, my, everybody, every guy in my family can cook. 
And oh. so my uncle, uh, yes, ev every guy in my family can cook. My cousin can barbecue. My dad is known for his gumbo, which I have been begging him to make, and he has not made yet. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's an all where, where are you from? Mississippi. Oh, okay. All right. So oh, this okay. is some good gumbo. Oh, well, <laughs> some of the best gumbo. When I say it's an all-day process, it's really a, like a day and a half because he gets all the materials and it takes like the night before prepping it, cleaning it, getting everything ready. And then certain things have to soak and simmer to develop the certain flavors that you want. And then the next day it cooks almost all day or simmers all day. And then when it's ready to eat, like it, you get three, four, five different bowls and you don't realize where you're putting it all. Like my aunt, one of my aunts gets a bowl without rice specifically so she can get more of it. I, I respect that. Those are just <laughs> parts, go, go for what you really want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, my uncle makes this seafood dressing that um, he has passed on to one of his daughters who's making it now and it is just as good as her dad. I mean, like, it's it's one of the few things. Like, I hate turkey, personally. It's because it's never been my favorite thing at Thanksgiving. That's why I've never cared for it. Mm -hmm. So when I first tried his seafood dressing, because this was something that he just made on a whim and then developed over the years. And every time I come home, it's one of the few things that I am sure to get. Other than that, as far as desserts, somebody always makes a pecan pie. I've never been real big on pecan pie. Mm. It's too sweet. Mm -hmm. Um the sweet potato pie is usually good but i mean that seems like a simple one for my family so what they have started doing lately is making these pound cake muffins they're like i'm listening pans. <laughs> <laughs> and you bite into it and you wonder how they got that much butter into a cake and not be greasy it's it's the most delicious thing okay i, think I have I've some follow-up questions okay so I love a pound cake. My great-grandmother mm -hmm. used to make a delicious, fabulous, like, um, mind-blowing pound cake. Mm -hmm. And now you're making me remember, like, someone else needs to figure out how to make that because I haven't had that pound cake in a while since she passed. And now I'm having a craving. But here's the thing. I love pound cakes, but I feel like the surface area mm -hmm. to interior ratio is mm -hmm. important because a good pound cake is moist, but we all know we've had some dry pound cakes in our lives. Right. It feels like muffin-fying the pancake could raise the odds of it being too dry. And so that's why you have to make sure you use enough butter to use that fat to help lock in the moisture. That's why each, mm -hmm. each flavor tastes buttery. It's not, but it's sweet. Like you get the, the sweet, it's not overpowering. It's, you get the sweetness of the pound cake, but because you have to basically almost glaze them with butter to keep them from drying out, that is like the secret. Okay. One more follow-up question about the pound uh -huh. cake muffin, sir. Um, mm -hmm. Is there still, do you, do you guys do like the like uh, icing sugar, lemony drizzle on the top? She, so my cousin Nicole's the one who's making these and she does not. But when we do a traditional pound cake, there is uh, an icing drizzle on top. Mm -hmm. But I hate super sweet icing. So they always, there's something that they do. I don't know if they just use a cream cheese icing or something mm -hmm. like that, but they do something to make it less overpoweringly sweet. And then if you want it to be sweeter, you will give you a scoop of ice cream to eat with it while it's hot. Okay, I accept mm -hmm. this. But what I'm hearing from me also is that we have a different palate because I am not of that, oh, this is too sweet. <laughs> I was not built like that. So my mom is like that. She, My mom, like, okay, cream cheese icing is not that sweet to begin with. And this year I made it extra not sweet because I know how she is. 
she still scrapes like half icing on the no. table, just sitting there on her plate. Moreover, she will not just let me have that icing. I'm like, okay, like, I don't have to have this whole, whole piece of cake. Just let me have the icing you cut off because that's the best part to me. She's like, no, that's not healthy for you just to be eating icing. I'm like, woman, I'm just going to have a whole entire piece of cake anyway. It's, it's like less sugar that I'm eating ultimately. No, so I have to watch her little piles of my delicious icing sitting on all of these dishes around the house, and it makes me insane. She realizes you're a runner, right? Like your metabolism is through the roof. <laughs> tell, tell her, tell her about sugar. it, though. This is not about like weight or fitness. This is about her thinking that it's just too much. It's like too much. You're going to spike glucose levels. So this is what I have to contend with. <laughs> but you run. That's what I'm saying. People who David. run typically have notoriously David. average or to low blood sugars because their bodies are used to dealing with the, the, the high glycemic spikes. David, tell it to Leslie. Tell it to Leslie. <laughs> okay. So what I, I sometimes what I used to do, I used to always make um twice as much icing as the recipe demanded because mm. i do it like i make a it's like a two-layer cake and sometimes i made it once and the icing didn't seem to go far enough because when you put it you know there's a lot of surface area when you have to do the middle the middle layer right. um and so for years i was making double and then i would just save the extra and i would add it to my slice yes no <laughs> I I, like, i'm here for dabs. it <laughs> i'm here for it but I, I recognize that that is also a little bit not healthy food relationship behavior. <laughs> so I stopped doing that. But like this year, she had me wishing that I had watching her little mounds of delicious ice cream just go into the uh, icing. Uh, into the crash I mean, that would have been a whole that would have been a whole thing for my family. You throwing away the icing, the icing, not. especially not when it was made special to be not overpowered. Exactly. I mean, it's <laughs> moreover, moreover, when she go, we don't go to Starbucks that often, but when she goes to Starbucks, she's so funny. She's like, she never knows what she wants. She's like, what should I get? What do I get? And she prefers to have, they have like a, like a, some kind of nutty loaf. That's like a, mm-hmm. like something with nuts. She loves nuts. But if they don't mm-hmm. have that loaf, she'll get the, you know, the lemon icing cake, pound cake thing. She okay. will not eat the icing. So I know I have to strategically cut it off and steal it before I give it to her because she also won't let me have it if, if I just deliver it to her whole. She feels like she's enabling or something. So she will let it go to waste. So this is this is what I'm talking about. I like the icing. I need the icing. Maybe we should hang out, um, David, and you can just share, and you can cut the tops off the muffins or whatever, and give them to me, and we can have some kind of simpatico. Definitely, we can do that. And I, if ever that happens, I'll try to send you to your mom. Like, come on, Let her have her <laughs> this is once a year. She runs. We're right. Good. Thank you, David. I appreciate you Thank being you. in my corner. I'm gonna tell Leslie you said all of this. <laughs> Feel free. Thanks, Bree. <laughs> Keep the faith. Keep the faith, David. <laughs> all right, Brent. What's on your mind this evening? This evening. Hi, Brianna. So um, I just want to say that you were really brave for standing up for uh, Katie Halper. Um, basically, I don't know what's going on with the situation with the Hill, but um, you're really brave to do that. And um, I just wanted to comment on um, you did an interview with Jank Uger, and I was just wondering how you kept your cool and you stayed so professional because – when I watched that interview, I thought to myself, man, this guy um, doesn't view Brie very uh, highly. He's, he's kind of sexist. <laughs> and what were you thinking going in, like during that interview? I know you you had to stay professional because that's your job, but 
I mean, I'm sure you could tell us on Colin, like, what were you really thinking when he was talking like that? Just curious. You know what's so funny is coming home for the holidays, the thing that everyone has brought up to me, you know, my families have been watching my clips and stuff. They bring up the Tank interview and they bring up the <laughs> Coleman Hughes interview. Everyone wanted to talk to me about Coleman Hughes, which I think was hilarious. Um, and, the, and the family friends that I mentioned are staying with us. They're both like jazz musicians and they know him as a jazz artist, which I thought was kind of funny because I, I, did, I didn't realize that he was that adept on the instrument. Anyway, back to Tank. So, you know, obviously I knew how he felt about me because the whole reason I reached out to him about having that conversation was because he had called me a fake leftist on somebody else's podcast, right? So it wasn't like I thought that I was moving into a situation with someone who had like glowing reviews of me. And, (laughs) you know, and, and obviously we had like a couple of minutes, uh, you know, we had, we had like a DM conversation as we were negotiating the conversation, which had a certain tone to it. That also caused me to anticipate what the tone was going to be like in the interview. I'll just leave that there. And there was like, you know, a couple of minutes of backstage conversation before we went live as well, which also indicated to me that this was not going to be an especially warm conversation. So I knew going into it that this was one of those situations where I don't have to, you know, I don't necessarily have to make a case for how I've been treated unfairly or how I feel like I've been characterized unfairly. If I demonstrate to his audience that I am not what he is telling people I am, then and, and his behavior is what it is, then it'll make it the case for itself. So I'm not saying that I am always keeping my cool in life, but I'll tell you what, when I'm being recorded <laughs> and I can prepare, I, I can keep my cool um, most of the time. Now, I did lose my cool with um, Charlie Kirk, and I was very embarrassed about that. And it remains one of my biggest debate regrets. But I, I learned from that situation. All you got to do, I mean, it, you know, I'm not better than anybody. I, I think there's a certain degree of, frankly, like emotional manipulation where like people think that the calmest person won the debate. And I don't think that's even fair. But I know that that's how the world is. And I will use it to my advantage when I can keep control. So that was the plan. And, you know, I think it went well. Okay, and then uh, I had one more question. So, when you interview these people, um, does the Hill or the the Hill do they give you do they say give you a script saying that if so, if the person you're interviewing um, gives a certain answer, you're not supposed to uh, rebut them or uh, do follow ups, or are you given free reign to speak to do as many follow ups as you want when you feel like there's a an answer that you feel needs to be um, questioned. You mean when I interview people on Bad Faith? Uh, on the on the Hill or rise, oh. it's rising, right? Yeah. yeah. So the the issue there is that there's time constraints. So they want every segment, especially now right. that they're pushing the show to the TV apps, like the Plex app and stuff, right. and having it run on like. So they have to like fit it in segment formats for commercials and like real ads. So they want us to get as close to the eight minute mark as possible, which is difficult. It's because sometimes, you know, it, there's not a lot of room for the follow up question. Moreover, the general format is that I ask a question, then Robbie asks a question, then I ask it, and then Robbie. So it, it can be sometimes difficult to ask the follow up question without seeming like I'm stepping all over Robbie's opportunity to ask questions. And there are sometimes guests where it's obvious that I have, like, it's more my guests, like, let's say, Rokana. And sometimes it's obvious that it's like something that Robbie's more in, interested in. And so I'll let him 
you know, take the reins, but it's not like we talk about it in advance. So I always feel a lot of pressure to, you know, not step on Robbie's opportunity to ask a question and also not keep asking follow-ups in a way that's going to make it irritating for producers later on, which is why, frankly, I much prefer long format. I much prefer, you know, bad faith. Like there have been times when we interviewed people on rising and I'm like, Oh, I wish I could ask them more. And then I've had them on bad faith. So Brittany Gibson, the journalist who wrote about the, um, uh, Stacey Abrams potential corruption story, uh, that's an example of that. Or there was a guest that I had on um, to talk about um, boots on the ground in Somalia. And she was a rising guest that I had come over to the other side. We had two trans guests recently that I'm in a dialogue with to come on together, or I'm sorry, one detransitioned and one trans guest that we had on the same day that I would love to have on together on bad faith going forward. So I'm emailing both of them about that. So like, I, I, well, that's a long way of saying I'm often frustrated by my inability in that context to, to answer follow-up questions. And it's why I think there's so much problem with mainstream news is that the format actually doesn't allow the depth of conversation that people deserve. Right. And I, uh, when I watch like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, I suspect that they give them a script and they don't, they don't do follow-ups because they're pushing an agenda. That was my like my suspicion. So that's why when I watch like some of the the podcasts on YouTube, I am thinking I I'm expecting more followers, but it's I've been talking to multiple podcasts that it's a time constraint. So it makes mm-hmm. more sense to me because I'm not really knowledgeable in this in how broadcasting works. So um I'm just trying to understand why there's no follow-up. So basically it's it's a time issue and it's well, So look, when I you have like other po- I can't speak for other people because even a long format, you know, not everybody follows up as much. So, like, I look, I'm a dog with the, I have a, a certain willingness to, like, not get to other stuff. So, like, okay, so for example, let's take this, um, the interview you guys are going to get on Monday. I, she has a lot to say, and there's a lot of great stuff in Clara's book. And I was listening to the Macro and Cheese episode, and I was feeling a little overwhelmed by, the idea that I had to get everything out on the table that came out in that interview and also ask the questions that I wanted to ask. And I made a decision, you know what? I'm going to trust that people can go find the macro and cheese interview. I'm going to do enough to like let her set the stage for what her book is about. And so there'll be some that's duplicative, but then we're just going to go off into our own thing, you know? And I am willing to like, I think it's better to get, I, I have a sense of what my priorities are in a conversation and what I really need to get answered. And I'm willing to stick with that until it gets answered, even if sometimes it becomes pedantic and maybe not the best. So I don't know if you remember that um, Norm Finkelstein episode from last summer <laughs> where we end up spending it. We ended up talking for three hours. It got cut down to like an hour and a half. But we argued, we couldn't get off this point of like whether or not Barack Obama was stupid. And I was like, Norm, I don't like Barack Obama. And I think your criticisms of Barack Obama mostly are very, very good and useful. But I think you have a credibility issue and you're going to turn off people who should listen to the rest of your critique if you insist on arguing that this man is actually unintelligent. And and I thought that it was not going to be a big point. Like, I thought we were going to get off it. And he dug in and I dug in and we went around in circles for like 90 minutes on that one point. So I'm not saying it's always constructive, but like, I don't know. My impulse is to have my sincerely held questions answered. And I think oftentimes right. it's to a good interview, especially with people like Rokana and stuff, like 
you have to listen to the answers you're getting. Some interviewers, right. they just ask the question and they move on. They have their like list of questions and they move on. I generally don't have a list of questions. Sometimes I'll take notes on like their book or an article or something like that and have issue areas that I want to explore. And I'll write down the occasional question. But like, even if I write down the question, it's the act of writing the question that embeds it in my brain. It's not that I'm like reading down a list. And I think that frees you up to actually listen to what the person is saying back to you, which often yields its own follow-up questions better than anything that you could have anticipated a priori, you know? Right, right. And that's, I, I like your interviewing style. And um, one more thing. Um, so were you scared when you uh, stood up for Katie How Like, when you're when you're on on the camera and defending her, like, were you what were you thinking? Were you scared? Were you what were you what was your uh, thought process when you defended Katie? Um, no, because look, I always thought I, I continue to think of the hill as a thing that I'm, you know, like I'm doing for now. It's not like I don't you know need it for money reasons. You know, I don't. You know, I don't need it professionally to have a platform. I have, you know, my own independent podcast, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't the, 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 the difficulty of the decision wasn't like the idea that like I was going to get pushed back or get fired myself. What was difficult was deciding whether or not it was worth it for platform reasons to be able to speak to that audience and stay on the show or whether it meant more to take a stand in and quit. And honestly, I, I don't, I don't know that I fully have resolved that, you know, I, but I'll say this, but for the volume of people who were like, stay on the hill, we need you on the hill, stay on the hill. I wouldn't have stayed. You know, I, it's very time consuming. It, I often feel overwhelmed by it. I often feel like I'm not as informed as I'd like to be and that I am not presenting myself to the world at my best. Um, and, you know, I, there are many aspects of it that I find to be challenging and less than ideal. And so there was a part of me that was like, great, this is a good excuse for me to walk away from something that's been challenging for me anyway. Um, but I also do feel like it's such a unique opportunity to be able to talk to what is frankly a right-leaning audience. And when I get those comments from, you know, people from that platform that says I disagree with Brianna on everything but like this was a good radar and she's making good points and it feels like a test kitchen that's useful to me rhetorically and it seems to be useful for people who are listening as well and as long as that is the case you know there that's the upside of me being there and so yeah I like, like I... It, but it wasn't like oh no if I if I like I, I, you know the issue wasn't being let go because I'm I'm grateful to not have to be reliant on them for sustenance, financial support. Right, right. That makes sense. Well, thank you for your thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling in. It's been great chatting with you. All right, thank you. All right. Jonathan, what is on your mind this evening? So I was listening to a macro podcast today, and it's weird how these guys will they'll let these little truths slip that are just horrifying but to them it's just weather you know like a tidal wave will hit somewhere and they'll be like what does this mean for markets i'm like jesus mm -hmm. 
but but they have this weirdly clear it's almost you almost envy the clarity that they have and these and you'll listen to them say something like um for example oh i don't know something about how well, the, the Fed hasn't hit their uh, target of about 7% unemployment. And you can see that the, mm. the futures skew in the futures market has priced in that they're not going to pivot until they hit that target. It's like an, you know, it's like an open secret that mm-hmm. that's the goal. Uh, but that's just an example. Uh, the one that, I hit, that hit me today, just today, what had to do with Turkey and what's going on with their stock market. And ter- they've been amazingly resilient in this worldwide recession, you know, and it has, and they're like looking at why is that going on? Well, they, it turns out they have an unprecedented number of imports from places like Italy and an mm-hmm. unprecedented number of exports to, to Russia. And I'm like, oh, huh. they're just the trampoline off of which sanction, you know, like this is how you get around. So this is an argument against BDS now because – before I go any further, I just got to get this equivocation thing out of the way. Because before when I was like, oh, well, about electoralism, you're like, oh, electoralism isn't just electoral politics and third parties. They specifically mean like supporting the DNC and that. I was like, well, it was in no way obvious to me that the word electoralism didn't mean electoral politics. Okay. So if that's all you mean is supporting the DNC, well, then I take it all back. Fuck the DNC and fuck electoralism. You know what I mean? But. Similarly, if all you mean by BDS is uh, selling guns to Israel, well, yeah, fine. I take it all back. Uh, BDS is awesome. But if you mean like broadly a way of divestment and sanctions as a way of problem solving, then you have to allow a little bit of utilitarianism in there. If what you're doing is holding up the valuation of some people's asset portfolio at the same time that commodity prices are rising, like the price of butter, which is to say you're the richer getting richer while life is getting more expensive for the poor. Like you fucked up. That's, that's what's happening. Cause just like the, the feds, you know, reactions aren't reactions they're pre-actions. They tell you what's going to happen. This is what we're going to do with the interest rate. The brokerages adjust accordingly. Even if the stock market goes down, that's the, the pension holders are the ones who get hurt. The brokerage judges this fine. You know, they make money on the up and the down. Even if the even if that broker is like, a, even if the hedge funds is full of Citibank stock, the brokerage itself does fine, and the brokerage itself is a subsidiary and fiduciary of who? Citibank. You see, okay, the, the so Citibank Jonathan, wins either way. I, I need you just to back up a little bit because I'm just a little lost. And okay. I'm sure it's me. Can you just go back and to make the BDS point? What 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 is your? Why do you say that BDS right, so, is a is it bad? Because just in the way that you have, right, because you have these Russian oligarchs buying Turkish, they're investing in the Turkish stock market, knowing that the Turkish, they're like, it's like apes strong together. Remember GME? Remember uh, GameStop? Well, the Turkish equity market is now Russian oligarchs being apes strong together. They they buy Turkish stock. They use Turkey as a trampoline to like, uh, uh, to bounce around sanctions. The, the Turkish equity market goes up despite the lira going out of control inflationary. The Russian oligarch gets richer because they own Turkish stock. The Russian poor people are paying more for butter. And it's the same thing. Like it's the same concept just reapplied. So now you're boycotting Russia. You're making Russian oligarchs, Russian oligarchs make money on the up and the down. They make money on the down is the point. 
You can't hurt them. It's a it's a short sighted way of not re, it's a way of not realizing the total control the oligarch has over everything that is signaled. If you're signaling something the way the Fed the Fed signals their uh, price actions and the and the Fed funds rate, you can't beat them with stuff that has been signaled because they right. own everything and they adjust their portfolios accordingly. So I guess. They're out of reach of are, tools are you, like BDS. Are you saying that the consequence of BDS, which is, I think, different than the kinds of same, like a boycott of consumer goods, which is basically what we have, what BDS is, because certainly the U.S. government isn't sanctioning Israel. But that a boycott of consumer goods, like us not buying soda streams, is equivalent to what's happening with Russia and Turkey. And if so... Have we seen Israeli corporatists exploiting those kinds of market actions? Because I, I, I just am not sure that I'm seeing the connection. And I also, I guess, we need an explanation of why, again, I don't know any about any of this specifically, but the perception is at least that the you know, boycott divest movement in South Africa was material in helping to end apartheid. What, you know, do you disagree with that analysis? And if so... I am not sure that the South Africans at the time of that apartheid had the sort of complex financial backing and instruments that the people in Israel and Russia have today. Like, were, were the people in South Africa going to invest? And they didn't have somebody like Turkey to help them get around those sanctions. So it might be a little bit of apples and oranges um, if, if it was working. And, and I'm not saying there's no way in which it works, but I'm saying there's a big way that I'm, and you're never going to know who is in the Turkish stock market and whose asset portfolio is largely made up of, you know, Turkish companies stocks right now, because you would have to subpoena so many, you know, so many people and so many hedge funds. This is all really nebulous, but it's always like you don't have to be Michael Corleone to do to ask yourself two questions. What would I do if I were an evil oligarch? That's exactly what I would do. So f follow the money and what would I do? Maybe that's thin to you to be going off of, but that's what I would do and that's where the money is. And who else, you know, who else would be doing that? Yeah, I guess I just, I, I com completely acknowledge that I might not be un understanding, but unless you're saying that you think that, I mean, I, I still don't quite get how, what the evidence is that BDS is enriching. And again, I think, I think the oligarchs, BDS isn't an aiming to like make Israeli oligarchs less affluent. The idea is to have some Im impact on the Israeli government, and not to say that there's no relationship there, but the Israeli government and their treatment of Palestinians, right? So, again, what is the argument that BDS is not only unhelpful to the goal of coercing the Israeli government to, to treat Palestinians, give Palestinians rights, and what is the evidence that it, in fact, is thwarting that effort or being, you know, so how BDS is... is having a detrimental effect, which I think was your initial claim. Yeah, I guess I would, this my specific example was more, would be more easily translated to Ukraine than to Israel. But if you have Israel, say you're not going to buy some import from Israel, and the people who now make that are going to be, 
they might be out of a job because they're not going to be manufactured that specific good. But if you say, I am, okay, so your point was not that I'm going to try to hurt the oligarchs. You're like, if you think that not buying their goods is going to pressure the Israeli population into pressuring their government to make changes in their policy toward Palestine, I would say that the I, I would ask you where the evidence for that is. It's, it's a burden of proof thing, I guess, because I think when you well, no, there was this movie I, called Dragonheart. I think it's fine to try things that fail, and obviously the BDS movie yeah. is like basically non-existent. Part some states have made it illegal. There's very little public support for it. It certainly is well far behind what the divest when boycott movement was in you know with respect to South Africa and apartheid. So, I mean, it's. But if, there, if there's no harm, there's no harm. It seemed to me like you were making the claim that BDS is actually helpful to the people we're trying to harm. And so, like, I, if people try things and they don't cause any harm, like, that's like me with force to vote. Like, the burden of proof is not actually on me for me to try something. The burden of proof is on people who are trying to keep me from trying something by claiming that there's something bad that's going to happen. The, the people who you're hoping will put pressure on the government are are normal people and they're the same sort of people who would be hurt by the sanction but in the words of sean connery in that movie when you i i i I don't know about that well then why would they put pressure on their government if they're not being feeling the effect of it well so for one me not buying a soda stream um the the idea is that it would most you know in, in in immediately hurt the makers of soda stream which i would argue are not like normal people and moreover the aggregate economic effects that the bds movement actually was big and effective which it's not big at all would be to actually have a like a significant impact on, on israel's ability to export goods across the board which obviously has some top level economic impacts for the country and the people who give political donations the people who are who are actually affluent and of course, any sanction regime eventually trickles down to the people, which is why, generally speaking, the left is against sanctions. But arguments have been made. like I, I really am not in a position to defend the the utility of the action. All I know is that people feel as though South Africa was effective. People think that BDS could be similarly effective. I I did not bring up BDS. You're you're making a claim that BDS is in fact causing the opposite effect. So do you actually believe that BDS is making it basically making the Israeli uh, corporatists and the, the um, right wing Israeli regime stronger? And if not, then I don't see what the harm is in people like not buying soda streams. Sorry, that's the only product I'm really aware of because I very much wanted uh, some sparkling water and had to research on this. <laughs> I don't know about soda stream, but I, I don't see who it's. I, I'm imagining who it is that you think is going to begin to think differently because of the boycott. Like, what, if they're if it's not normal people, then then it's then it's rich people. And if it's rich people, then what I just explained is how they benefit from anything that you signal because you signaled it. Like they can divest from SodaStream if you say you're not going to buy it. They're the ones who have assets, and the people who have assets are the rich. And if they're the ones who can sort of sell it off. Should we divest from uh, oil companies? Should we ask our universities or the people who do our 401ks or whatever to not invest in polluting companies or pharmaceutical companies or other kind of exploitative companies? No, 
No, we got to nationalize oil companies. That's like like your last guest said, you know. Well, these that, that... aren't mutually exclusive. But when you go and you put together your investment portfolio or tell whoever what what stocks should be invested in what, does it? do you think that there's, there, people should just not do that, that it's a bad thing for people to push to divest from those industries? No, if, 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 you have a, if, you have, if you're putting together a pension fund, you have a responsibility to the pensioners. I don't disagree. Like, and I, okay, these people I'm listening Harvard to University. these – should Harvard University okay. have students have done push to divest from oil companies? No, no, that's no, not the I question. Mean, the question is, does it hurt? Is it a bad thing for Harvard students to have pushed Harvard with its multi-billion dollar endowment to divest from oil companies? So when you say divest from oil companies, you mean stop giving money to, or take money from them? Stop no, taking stop money from them? stop buying stock in those companies. Stop having those companies be part of its investment portfolio. If it's the students who are saying that, and it's they who stand to lose from that, I don't see a problem with it. Well, the students don't stand to lose. Students don't get shit from Harvard. It's the Harvard who stands endowment. to. Har- it's Harvard itself. Harvard may or may it's... not make less money because it didn't invest in an oil company as compared to another company. I would say, yeah, I would say that's uh, somewhat misguided. Yeah, like it's it's. Like I get the argument of these macro investors. They're like, look, I, a bunch of people pay me to to make their to take care of their assets, and I'm going to do the best job that I can. It's not my job to save the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, look, look, you're 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 lucky, Jonathan, because the world is already working the way that you want, which is that you know people's fiduciary obligations and the profit motive is what's guiding all of these investment decisions and ethics and externalities and downstream effects have nothing to do with it. So we we have the world as you want it to be. Like, not that you want it to be, but like, the, the status quo is already what you're advocating. And I don't really personally have the energy to be mad at people who are trying in the little piecemeal ways that they can to try to divest from those kinds of systems. I obviously agree that we should nationalize many of these uh, commodities industries, et cetera. And I think that all of this stuff should be worker owned. And I think that we should have socialism. But I also just don't understand taking the energy. I, I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I personally don't have the energy to be mad at people who are back. I'm not Asia, mad at them. Or just, I'm just or, you, I wonder you if it's not making the owners of Turkish. Jonathan, you open this an argument you think it's detrimental. I have not heard the argument that it is detrimental for for Harvard you, University to have divested from Shell Oil Company or whatever. Or for me when I was given the option at the law firm to like pick what I invested in, like what my what my four oh one K or whatever was invested okay. in to say can we not do these oil companies? Well, like, maybe the boycott, the, the divest, more... and the sanction are all different arguments, you know. And then maybe you're right about the divestment, especially in a case, that case. But this, I'm I'm more about the sanction is the one I was talking about more than the divestment. The sanction as a way to dealing with foreign policy problems is, you know, I think I can still have that while giving you the divestment one, you know. Okay. Well, good, the good news then, I guess, is that America is nowhere close to ever sanctioning Israel for anything. So, <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> but but uh, Sean was in the queue, uh, so before I go, I just have to uh, steal. I mean, I was going to say steal his thunder, but I think he's dropped out because oh, I know, okay. like, I already know what he's going to say, and I put, I just put my little meme in the in the chat there, and the meme has a little, I don't know, maybe you can see it, just a little koala in a field of cut down tree stumps. He's hugging the tree stump and shaking rather nervously. And you pan up and you see there are no trees. And then there's this dude with a clipboard, maybe a couple. And it's like, oh, 
this koala has a, a mental health problem. Do, do, does he, though? Does he have a mental health problem? Or is that koala having a perfectly sane reaction to an insane situation? Is, like, the, the, the rampant lack of opportunity really the problem? Mm-hmm. You've got one side, oh, it's a gun problem. Oh, no, it's a mental health problem. And to me, it's kind of bait, although not conscious bait or deliberate, like set bait. But to be like, oh, if you really think it's a mental health problem, then why did you vote against mental health funding? Uh, checkmate. And you pat yourself on the back. I gotcha. I got own the lib or own the conservative. No, but you are, what you've done is accept their premise that it's a mental health problem, as if there's some sort of virus causing more mental health in the human organism than there ever has been before. No, what the, the unprecedented level of it is because of the economy, not because of mental health. Like every problem is an economic problem. If that's, I mean, that's I, I wouldn't necessarily say that every problem is an economic problem. It feels a little narrow, although that's to the, the degree to which it is systemic. But what I would say is that is. Um, something that my mother often says, she's a stress counselor who uh, administered you know, stress counseling to UN staff members who were stationed in some of the worst places in the world um, for 17 years. Um, and saw like horrible tragedies on a daily basis and were themselves in, in, in a lot of physical danger. She would say, you know, it's ridiculous when her bosses would try to send her or her staff to counsel people who were having a stress response to a stressful situation. Because to your point, they weren't having a, they weren't reacting inappropriately. They have a living with gun bullets, you know, blitzing by their head or seeing famine and children starving to death in the streets. And they are, appropriately having an emotional response and to the extent that you want to diminish that emotional response, you have to take them out and and let them leave and go on leave and go back to their home, their home country and take a break. And thinking that you're going to inject psychologists into a stress situation and, and that they're going to be able to get rid of the reasonable response is um, short-sighted and naive. So I agree with you that there are a lot of, you know, environmental issues that need to be addressed, many of which have an economic component. And um, it's something that we're going to have to keep trying to work through. Um, but I appreciate you calling in, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Thomas, you are going to be our last because we're coming up to the top of two hours. Is this working? Um, so let us know what's on your mind, Thomas. Oh. The app is getting kind of glitchy. Sorry, I had uh, I had hung up because uh, I didn't really have anything to say. You can move on to something else. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for your honesty, Thomas. Bryant, you are you will be the last caller then. What's on your mind, Bryant? Hey, I'm gonna Whoa. ask something really and you can make it sound smart. Did you do Black Friday this year? No, I don't I mean like actually going to a mall and stuff. We've never really been that type. Yeah. Cause, um, I, I don't say that in a holier than that way. I know that like they're deals and people need to yeah, do Christmas shopping. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But you know, I um, in Jackson, Mississippi, it's like dead <laughs> right now. It's like any other Saturday, which is kind of strange to me. Oh, interesting. Uh, and I'm wondering, and I'm wondering if it's like on the consumer side, where like nobody has any money to buy things, or if it's like there aren't businesses willing to give those sales like they used to and i i don't know that's fascinating because i like based on my inbox in the text messages that i get from companies that i bought things from seems like there's a lot of sales <laughs> um yeah. and i did like make an online purchase because my mom's birthday is on the fourth of December, so i bought a birthday present 
But like, it, it, I don't think of that as like Black Friday shopping. I thought of that as, oh shit, my mom's birthday is coming. I want to spot this. Um, so like, it, it does seem like I, I'm getting advertisements for sales. But it's funny, we, we've had a segment that we were scheduled to do on Rising, and we ended up not doing it because neither Robbie or I had anything really to say about it. But it was it was an, a segment about how apparently retail had rebounded, um, and they were saying you know like good things. About the economy as a consequence of that but both Robbie and I looked at the article and was like these numbers don't seem that great like a 1.3 percent increase or whatever just doesn't seem that big and is this just like a propagandistic article to make it look like Biden's doing a good job and neither of us had time to like get into it so we just scrapped it but your anecdotal evidence that people don't really seem to be out here in the streets that much shopping mm-hmm. it's interesting to yeah. note hmm. yeah it's yeah yeah I mean I mean trying to make it sound halfway smart do you think we kind of reach the limits of of just influencing people to buy things when they don't necessarily want to buy things or i don't know man but i'll tell you what i've learned about myself is yeah. that i'm happier when i have like again i'm not holier than now i like i like things yeah. okay but i'm happier when i have fewer nicer things yeah like i i realized that the burden of carrying around about like when i was younger when I was younger, two things. One, it used to be harder for me to do laundry because I never had a washer dryer in unit to my current apartment. And in New York, I didn't have a washer dryer in the whole building. So like, I would buy a lot of duplicates so that I could wear things when my clothes all got dirty. And now that I am in a different situation, I realize like, the fact of me having so many pairs of jeans and so many sweaters in the same in different colors it just feels overwhelming mm-hmm. and burdensome. And I don't want things. I tell my mom, don't get me anything. I don't want things in my life unless I love them. <laughs> it feels yeah. toxic and heavy. And I wonder if people, I don't know, obviously there's an economic crisis, so that's probably what's, what's just what's going on. But also yeah, there are, I'm, I'm the, experiencing the limits of consumerism. Like I don't want anything else. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this is a, maybe we should count this as a blessing. I mean, that's all I wanted to say. I didn't have anything like big or fancy to talk about. I just wanted to ask you that question. <laughs> well, look, I, I appreciate that insight. How, how are things otherwise in Jackson? I know obviously with the whole water crisis has been a, a rough, a rough time. Well, the water is safe to drink. Um, okay. Right now we're trying to, we're trying to get a third party to manage the plant because we are, that plant is dangerously understaffed. Hmm. Um, and right now it's really a fight between the mayor and the governor over basically control. The city wants to keep control. The state says the city's not responsible enough to keep control. And there's just... How, how, how is Chokwe Lumumba perceived locally? It's, it's mixed. I mean, he, he won yeah. re-election easily, but... It, it's mixed. A lot of people just want stuff done, you know, as, as most people want with mayors. It, it doesn't really matter the party, mm-hmm. but it's really more the state just seems to have it out for Jackson. Just mm-hmm. they look at us like we don't know how to take care of anything. And they keep talking about, oh, well, the last mayor who was able to take care of things was so-and-so. It's like, well, that was the last mayor that was white. What are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And there was such, I mean, there was, you know, it was not some mystery about white flight in yeah, the city is, and like uh, what happened when you got a black it, mayor. It's, uh, it's a, it's, 
and resource withdrawal and it's like just a whole horrible tragic i was just curious because chuck i mean he is this like kind of like openly socialist mayor mm-hmm. that we kind of are rooting for and i'm curious i guess i was just curious how much the problems in jackson are attributed to him versus uh state government well i, I know he made some statements where he was trying not to have an open fight well, no, state government. No, nobody nobody's really blaming him for causing it because it's, it's been a problem that's been long in the making just a lot of white flight has just drained the city um of of needed funding but it's um yeah (laughs) yeah well look i'm glad i i hadn't i confess i hadn't been following so i'm glad to hear that the drinking water is safe that's huge and um i'm glad we put a little bit of a silver lining maybe on there not being a lot of people at the store (laughs) Um, but we'll see. I'm sure there'll yeah. be some interesting economic reports coming out of Black Friday. Right. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll try to I'll try not to to downvote it if it comes up again on the hill, so we could actually get into it a little bit. Okay. Th- thanks right. for coming, Thank Brian. And I, I hope you All enjoy right. the rest you. of your uh, weekend. Keep the All faith. Right, All right. All right. Well, we are at 7:05. I see there's a couple of people in the queue. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap today because I could think I can hear that people came home and I'm going to stop being antisocial. I'm glad, uh, we did this and had a nice little group here in the chat. Apologies for the lack of outro music. Again, I'm without my soundboard, but I will see you Monday evening for